Good morning or good evening, uh, whatever it is for you as you're watching this. Obviously, you're expecting a Sunday morning sermon, uh, but you're seeing something different. I'm in a VBS shirt. We've got our VBS decorations up behind us. We've got VBS going on this week. Um, unfortunately, we still live in a sinful, fallen world, and so there are technology issues, and we had one on Sunday where our video recorded, but our audio did not. So there have been some of you that have requested uh, being able to hear the sermon, and uh, maybe you're coming back to watch this just for future reference. You wanted to refer back to the sermon. Maybe you've come across our website, and you're looking for answers for something, and it's brought you to this. Uh, whatever it is, um, this will be a little bit different. I'm going to re-record what was preached on Sunday. It might sound slightly different. The material will be the same. And I hope that God still speaks to you through his word, uh, maybe even in a way that, that you weren't expecting. Maybe if you saw the sermon before, maybe in a way that's different than on this past Sunday. Uh, regardless of however the Lord uses this, I'm grateful to at least have the technology to be able to provide this for you. So our passage, uh, I'm just going to say today, is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you could go ahead and turn there if you have your Bible with you. While you're turning there, I want to give you an, an illustration. It's a famous preacher story that is told in churches and the pastor we used to say something like oh there was this one guy or there was one preacher and you never really know if it actually happened or not but uh, this story makes a good point anyway so I'll go ahead and share it with you there's this pastor and he is ministering to this congregation and there's one individual in particular that the pastor gets close with and he's discipling him and this man stops coming to church at first it's just one week that's okay uh, maybe he's out of town, maybe he's working, maybe something came up. And then one week turns into two weeks. Before you know it, it's a month. And the pastor says, okay, well, this is a little abnormal. I need to just go and check on this brother and see if he's okay. So the pastor goes by his house and knocks on his door, and the man answers and seems okay. And says, oh, hey, pastor, I thought you'd come by at some point. Said, yeah, is, is everything okay? I hadn't seen you at church, just checking on you. He said, yeah, you know, I just had some frustrations at the church and nothing you've done or anything. I'm just, you know, it's just some frustrations. And, you know, I got to thinking about it and I don't feel like I, I really need the church to be a happy Christian, to worship God. I can worship God from my house. I can sing from my house and study the Bible. And, and you know, I just don't think I need the church anymore. And so the pastor, you know, tried to gently, lovingly persuade him otherwise, but it was obvious the man had made up his mind, and so he said, okay, well, I hope that you do decide to come back soon. He said, well, we'll see. So he leaves, and, you know, weeks turn into months. Uh, before you know it, it's six, seven, eight months later. It's getting close to a year, and the pastor happens to be driving through the neighborhood, and he drives by this man's house, and he remembers, and so he stops and gets out, goes up to the door and knocks on the door. The man answers the door, and he looks weary. His eyes look heavy, and he answers the door, and his attitude, his demeanor is obviously very different. And he can, you can sense when he answers, he just looks like he's full of dread. It's like, oh, hey, pastor. Hey, just driving by. I saw your house. Hadn't seen you in a while. Wanted to check on you, see how you were doing, maybe drink some coffee with you. And so the guy, you know, looks a little irritated, but he invites him in, doesn't want to be rude to the preacher, so invites the pastor in. They sit down and drink some coffee, and they're talking lighthearted, and 
and the pastor tries to bring up the subject and broach the subject of coming back to church, and the man is obviously very frustrated. He's like, look, I'm happy with the way things are, okay? I don't need church. So the pastor obviously knew that that was wrong, or he wouldn't be reacting that way, but thought best not to say anything, and he, they finished their coffee in silence. It's pretty awkward, and the pastor says, you know, uh, I won't keep you much longer, but that coffee was really good, if you don't mind just me having one more cup. And so the man says, okay, and gets his cup and goes in the kitchen. And while the man's in there, pastor gets up and walks over to the fireplace, and the fire's going, and pastor gets some tongs and reaches in and grabs one of the coals out from the fire and sets it on the fireplace ledge. And he comes and sits back down, and about that time, the gentleman's coming back in and has his coffee, hands it to him, and pastor's drinking, and they're watching that coal, that ember, at first it's just this bright white and yellow glowing orange around the edges and and as the pastor drinks his coffee that coal starts to darken around the edges, turn black, that bright white light starts to dim to a white gray and before you know it the ember has gone out and it's just sitting there getting cold and they're sitting in silence, pastor's drinking his coffee, not really saying much. And so the pastor drinks, takes the last sip, sets his cup down, and goes over to the fireplace and grabs that coal and tosses it back into the fire, and it just instantly illuminates again. Bright, hot, white. And he just kind of looks at it and says, Well, thanks for the coffee. It's good seeing you. I'll, I'll get out of your hair. Goes to the door, and the man stands up and says, Pastor, turns around and says, yeah, I'll see you in church on Sunday. He said, okay. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've heard the comment, similar comment. I've heard it. You don't really have to go to church to be a Christian. It's a lot like saying you don't have to eat to be a human. (laughs) You know, technically it's true. I can be a human and not eat, but um, it goes against life, health, biology. Yeah, we need food. And in the same way, it goes against life, health, and our spiritual biology to live that way as a Christian and to say, I don't, I don't need the church. In addition to the Bible's clear command to do so, we're going to look at one reason today why Christians should be not just present at a church, but deeply involved in a Christian community. Here's our main idea, if you're taking notes. Christian community should influence Christian living. Christian community should influence Christian living. So let me give you some context. Hopefully you've got your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 8 here. We've been going through this book together on Sunday mornings, and uh, so far a lot of the topics revolve around the church. I mean, the, the church in Corinth has all these questions, and Paul has some issues he wants to address with them. So just a, a brief reminder, we are moving on to the sixth topic out of about ten, the way that I count them. Uh, number one, he addressed unhealthy division in the church, specifically over preferences. They were talking about their desires for different teachers. And the second thing was a lack of healthy division, so especially regarding gross, unrepentant sin. That's church discipline. We talked about that in chapter 5. Then it talked about handling conflict in the church. Specifically, he talked about lawsuits among believers. He talked about sexual immorality, number four. And then number five, talked about marriage. 
including singleness, divorce, uh, engagement, remarriage, and we kind of applied a lot of those principles to life generally. The major theme was to be faithful to your commitments and to be focused on the Lord no matter which category you fit in, in marriage or whether being single. So now we move on to number six, Christian rights and freedoms. This begins in chapter eight and goes through the end of chapter 10. So today we will look at all 13 verses in chapter 8. Um, I'm going to read God's word for us, and then we will pray and dive right in. Here's what it says. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are the divine author of your word. You are the one who has inspired individuals to record your every word, that we might have it. And you are the one who can illuminate your word. Give us understanding and insight. So we ask that you do so today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as we start off our passage, again, I I kind of brought up that this goes from chapter eight all the way through the end of chapter 10. And Paul gives several different examples here. He gives some personal examples and applications talking about Christian rights and freedoms and obligations and that sort of thing. I want to start with the end in sight. And over the next several Sundays, we're going to be doing this. We're going to be reciting 1 Corinthians 10, 31 together. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 10 at the end of kind of this section in verse 31, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This should frame everything that we look at in chapters 8, 9, and 10. This is the summary statement. This is the foundation. This is what Paul is building through all of these passages and teachings. So if you end up joining us in church, I want to challenge you to start to memorize this now so that next Sunday when you join us, you can recite it with us. And if you're just joining us online, I want to challenge you to memorize this verse just in general. Uh, And and I know that the Lord will use it in your life in a mighty way. So this verse summarizes everything that Paul is about to suggest. And it's with that foundation that we can go back to chapter 8 and start in verse 1 and kind of work through the passage. So verse 1 says, Now concerning food offered to idols. 
now concerning is our clue that Paul is moving on to the next topic in the Corinthians letter. If you'll remember, that's kind of his marker as he addresses these different topics that they wrote about. He says, now concerning this, now concerning this, they have written about various issues and Paul is answering them for them. So now he tells us he's going to be talking about food offered to idols. Now, it would be helpful for us to have a little bit of historical context and background with this. Roman culture was polytheistic. We see this in verse 5, where it says, although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, he's not saying that polytheism is true. He's saying that there are many who recognize many small g gods. And so the, the the culture at that time was polytheistic. There would be some people that worshiped multiple gods. There would be some people that worshiped one god and, and one god alone, but then they at least acknowledged that there are other gods. And with this belief, there would be various temples and various altars set up outside these temples for sacrifices. It didn't have to always be an animal. It could be something that's non-living, like a food sacrifice. And it didn't always have to be, if it was an animal, it didn't have to be killed or it didn't have to be necessarily burned up. One of the practices was that they would sprinkle water on these gifts on the altar, and that was the way of saying that this no longer belongs to us, but now it belongs to whatever deity that they were worshiping. But the highest form of sacrifice would be an animal sacrifice, and it would be killing the animal. And the offerer of the sacrifice, once they killed the animal, would partake in the sacrifice by eating some of the meat. So the participant would eat some, but then the rest of the meat would go to a meat market, or it might be used in a religious festival, a temple banquet. A temple banquet was kind of a big social event. A lot would gather in the community at this temple. They would have some of this leftover meat from these sacrifices, and they would eat it together, uh, sometimes as a, another form of worship. Sometimes it wasn't quite so obvious. They didn't really mention the sacrifice. They just opened it up for a banquet, and it was more of a social experience than it was a religious experience. And what would happen is they would invite people in the society to attend, particularly leaders in the community or business owners. So naturally, as the church began to gain prominence, church leaders, these stronger Christians, would be invited to these social gatherings to eat. And they know that there is no such thing as these little gods, and so they didn't feel any guilt at all about going or any question in their conscience about partaking. This would explain Paul's comments later about why a strong Christian might be eating meat in an idol's temple. We might read that and think, well, why would a stronger Christian be doing that? Well, this is very likely what he is talking about. Now, concerning meat markets, because the temples utilized animals for sacrifice so much, a lot of the meat that was left over would be given to these meat markets to be sold. So when you went to a meat market, there was a very good chance that you were buying meat from an animal that had been sacrificed to a false god or to an idol. Now, the good news here is that you don't really need to know any of this to get Paul's point in the passage. But it really does help to answer some questions, like why would these strong Christians be eating in an idol's temple? Or why in 1 Corinthians 10.25 would Paul talk about uh, having a question in your conscience about buying meat sold in the marketplace? What, what is that about? Well, it's also helpful for us to see that Christians are called to navigate complex cultural issues and practices with holiness and sensitivity. 
We have to do this today as we think about these various issues in our culture that are arising. Different stores or businesses or corporations that support values or views that Christians don't hold. How do we navigate through these issues, especially as more and more businesses are jumping on board with this type of uh, marketing? How do we navigate these things? So this all brings us to the main thrust this morning. And we're actually going to start with verses 4 through 6 instead of 1 through 3. Um, It'll make sense here in just a moment. So verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, in verses 4 through 6, we see a very simple, clear truth. Idols aren't real. These gods are not real. They're called false gods because they are not gods. They are nothing. They are made up. They are depictions from men about what they think God might be like, what they imagine him to be like and to do. They're non-existent. The Muslim conception of God is not real. The Greek pantheon is not real. The gods of Norse mythology, they are not real. How do we know this? Well, the scripture says, and Paul communicates, that idols aren't real gods. There is no God but one. We see here, an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. We know Isaiah 41, 24 says, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Speaking about idols. Deuteronomy 4, 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. In verse Five, we see this reference to so-called gods in heaven and on earth, many gods, many lords. Gods, little g, gods like that, would probably be referring to these false gods, idols. And the lords there would probably be referring to earthly leaders, Roman emperors, as lord was often a title used in that way. So Paul is setting up this play on words in verse 6. There may be many so-called gods, these little g gods, in your Greek pantheon, these little l lords in these uh, rulers, these emperors, but there is only one God, and that is our God. And there is only one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. And notice how he describes them. When he mentions the Father, he uses creation language. All things are from him. All things exist for him. And then when he gets to the Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord, same language. All things are through him. And all things exist through him. So what we see here very clearly is this language of the Trinity, that there is one God in three persons. Though we don't see the Spirit here, we see that truth affirmed. So when we look to Jesus, we see an image of the one true living God. There is one God. These idols are not real. So, since there's no such thing as an idol, there's no such thing as honoring an idol by food that you eat. It's ridiculous. The idol isn't real. 
it's just food. That is the knowledge that Paul is going to be talking about in verses 1 through 3. So now let's go back to 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So verses 4 through 6 describe in part the knowledge mentioned in verse 1. Now in the ESV, he has, they have quotes around, all of us possess knowledge. It's possible that, that Paul is intending this to be a quote maybe from their first letter. You can almost imagine the Corinthians saying, Paul, can we eat at these religious festivals? We know that they offered the meat to an animal sacrifice, but we're invited to attend. It's a community gathering. It's an opportunity for us to rub shoulders with others and try to share the gospel. They're not worshiping these gods here. It's more of a social thing. And look, all of us know this. Like, we know these gods aren't real. All of us possess this knowledge. We don't know that that's what they said, but it makes sense. And so Paul's response to that idea, yeah, yeah, I already know all these things, Paul. His response to that attitude is pretty sharp. Oh yeah, you think you know something? Well, the very fact that you think that you know something and that you have it all figured out and you have this attitude reveals that you actually don't know as much as you think you do. Now, whether or not this is exactly how this back and forth is playing out, the general idea is that knowledge can puff up with pride. And that's what we see here in verse 1. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There is a real danger. It, it doesn't, knowledge doesn't necessarily puff us up with pride. But there's a real danger and a real risk, a serious risk. When we are filled with knowledge and are tempted to say, yeah, yeah, I already know, our pride is speaking more than our actual knowledge is in that moment. And actually, our prideful response reveals that we don't actually know as much as we think that we do. Because one of the great paradoxes of life is that the more you think you know, the more you know, the less you realize you actually know. Think back to when you went to college. You got out of high school, you thought, I've got this all figured out, I know everything. And you get to college and you learn real quick. There is so much more that you didn't know that you're embarrassed. And as you continue to grow in knowledge and education in college, the more you seem to learn, the more you seem to realize there is that you really just don't know. Well, if this is true of life in general, why would we think that this isn't true of our spiritual lives as well? The ones of us most at risk of spiritual pride like this are those of us who have been Christians the longest. Teachers of the scriptures, Sunday school teachers, Christians that have been Christians for decades. If we are truly increasing in knowledge, our knowledge will be accompanied by humility. If it's accompanied by pride, then we prove ourselves wrong and we show that we're really not learning as much as we thought we were. You may be gaining knowledge, but you're not growing in knowledge. And ironically, when we're in that position, we'll never know because our pride prevents us from seeing it. In our verses, the contrast to this prideful knowledge is a loving knowledge. We see 
this knowledge puffs up in verse 1, but love builds up. Our knowledge of God should not puff us up in pride. It should build us and others up in love. That loving knowledge truly reveals whether or not we are known by God. So now that we've got all that out of the way, what Paul is saying about eating food offered to idols with all of this, what is he saying? Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. Now, proper knowledge, which Paul spelled out in verses 4 through 6, says, well, this is just food. Idols aren't real. There's only one God, and that guy ain't it. God provided this food for me. I'm grateful for it, and I'm going to eat it. And I don't think that I've sinned. I don't feel wrong. I don't think God's word clearly says that this is wrong. So that's the knowledge he's talking about. But, and this is crucial, not all possess this knowledge. Now pay very careful attention to Paul's line of reasoning here. Some, because of former association with idols, violate their conscience by eating food at these religious festivals or food that they know has been offered to an idol or little g God. Now, is this knowledge right? No. But for this person, is it a sin for them to engage? Yes. Why? Because they believe it is wrong and they're doing it anyway. The act in itself may not be sinful, but they believe it to be sinful and then engage in it, and in doing that, they sin. Paul articulates this a little more clearly in Romans 14, 13 through 23. If you want to go and look at that later, very similar idea, similar application, similar points. I want to just read verse 23, though, because I think this really helps us to see it a little more clearly what I'm saying. Here's what verse 23 says. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So now back in 1 Corinthians, Paul clarifies, food has no impact on our relationship with God. We are free. We are no closer or no further away if we eat or refrain. And then in verse 9, we see he uses this word right. We have a right to these things. Now here's where Paul's going to get really countercultural. Look at the entirety of verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I don't know if that hits you like it hits me, but especially for us here in America, we need to grapple and wrestle with what Paul is saying here. What Paul is suggesting is that as a Christian, our rights are not the ultimate determining factor in how we ought to live. There is a such thing as a category of action that is the best good for us to do, and it happens by laying down for a moment a certain right that we have as a Christian to act or speak or think a certain way. Put differently, you may have the right to do something, 
but it may not necessarily mean that it's the right thing to do in that moment. In this case, the weaker believer is being encouraged to do what he or she believes is a sin. As the weaker believer sees a stronger believer engaging in an activity that that weaker believer is struggling with, the weaker believer looks to the stronger believer and says, well, they're doing it. It must be okay. I think it's okay. And they're tempted to do something that they are still struggling with internally. So that stronger believer in exercising his right has caused a weaker believer to stumble. Even though you know it's not a sin, your brother or sister does not. Your knowledge, which you use to display how spiritual you are, is actually destroying a brother or sister whom Christ died for. Your knowledge is puffing you up and not building up. And you show in that moment that you actually don't know as much as you think you do by choosing to enjoy your right at the expense of your brother or sister's conscience. Don't pass over the phrase in verse 12 here. Verse 12. It says that in doing this, you are sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. And in so doing, you sin against Christ. So you have not technically sinned in your eating. You had the right knowledge. It's not sinful. You thanked the Lord. That's wonderful. But you have sinned by not laying down your rights as a Christian in order to help another brother or sister in their walk with the Lord. So what's Paul's conclusion in all of this? Verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Does Paul have a right to eat meat? Absolutely he does. But he is demonstrating for us and giving us an example we ought to lay down our rights for the good of our brothers and sisters. Let's get some application this morning. If you're taking notes, number one, talking about Christian community and what that ought to look like. Christian community means that we are accountable to each other and for each other. Christian community means that we are accountable to each other and for each other. We already know what it means to be held accountable to each other. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 5 with church discipline pretty clearly. However, part of being held accountable to someone means that someone is being held accountable for the other. If you think about accountability partners, there's two parties in this relationship. There's one person, I need accountability, so I'm going to make myself accountable to you. Well, at the same time, this person is accountable for the other. It's both and. And it's the same thing across the board in accountability. It means not just being accountable to each other, but for each other. It means that we have each other's good at heart in what we choose to do, not just in what we advise them to do or not to do. So do you see how we take this focus of accountability and try to 
put it out onto someone else and their actions when part of it is me watching what I do because I am accountable for my brothers and sisters regarding how my actions might affect them. Usually, we don't think of accountability this way. We think of it as monitoring the actions of another. But this morning, we see that it is also monitoring your own actions to make sure it doesn't have a negative impact on others. This means that we can't hide behind this excuse anymore that, well, that's not my fault. Well, well, that's their fault. They should have known. And a lot of times we understand before we have done or said whatever it is we did or said. We understand that there are those who struggle, but we choose not to consider that. And it's not just that, well, I didn't know when they just happened to. A lot of times it's, well, I knew, but I still didn't do anything wrong, so it's okay. And that attitude in itself is this puffed up knowledge and this pride. Accountability is more than just monitoring the actions of others. It is monitoring your own actions and making sure it doesn't have a negative impact on your brothers and sisters. If our actions cause another to stumble, though they are still responsible for what they do, don't mishear me, they are responsible. That doesn't mean that we are not responsible for our contribution to their error. And that's what Paul is making, the point he's making here. This is what Paul means in Romans 15, right after the passage in Romans 14, very similar to this passage. In chapter 15, verse 1, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Obligation. We have an obligation. And that obligation sometimes means that we lay down our rights and our freedoms to serve one another. Because our obligation is to one another, to help one another, to make sure that we aren't hindering one another by what we choose to accept or engage in. That's the first point. Number two, a strong Christian community won't just gain knowledge, but it will grow in knowledge. A strong Christian community won't just gain knowledge, but it will grow in knowledge. The pure gaining of knowledge puffs up with pride. As we gain knowledge, we should be growing in it as well. There is a such thing as acquiring knowledge and not growing. If you want an example of this, look at the Pharisees. Sharp, brilliant, large portions of Scripture committed to memory. They knew the law like the back of their hands. Yet Jesus condemns them frequently. He says to Nicodemus in John 3, You're a teacher of Israel, and you can't understand this. It's because Nicodemus had acquired a lot of knowledge, but he had not grown in that knowledge as he should have. What this means for us spiritually is that we are using our knowledge for the good of others and not just for ourselves. When our knowledge is only used to benefit ourselves, we may be falling into a pattern of pridefulness. It's possible for you to be correct about your right to do something or the freedom that you have in Christ to do it, but that doesn't make it a wise thing to do. That doesn't mean that a wise or knowledgeable person ought to do it. True knowledge Growing knowledge will widen its gaze from just God and self 
to God, others, and self. We don't just have our blinders up thinking, how does this affect me? How does God think about this? That's how we're tempted to live, especially in our highly individualized Western culture. We are tempted to just think about, and even in the non-believing culture around us, our secular culture, there's this idea that you don't have a right to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. What I'm doing is between me and whatever higher power that exists and whoever I say that that is. And essentially, each person has become their own God, and no one has any right to say anything to anybody else. But that is contrary to the truth of God's Word. We need to realize that what we ought to be doing with our knowledge is not just focused on how it affects me and then what God thinks about it and that's it. I need to widen it and grow in my knowledge to say how does what I am choosing to engage in or to accept, not just how does it affect me, how does it affect those around me, specifically in this context here, those in my church, my brothers and sisters in Christ. It isn't enough to know if something is right or wrong and how it affects us individually. We need to push ourselves to think more deeply and ask, how is this going to affect other people? Will this help others or be a hindrance to others? Or is it truly neutral with no effect? The wisest of us in the church will ask these types of questions, not just does the Bible give me permission. That's a great question to ask. But the Bible's permission is only part of the knowledge that we need in order to grow in knowledge. We also need the Bible's guidance on how to use the knowledge that it gives us. And this means in part, bearing with one another, carrying out this obligation to lay down our rights and freedoms for the good of our brothers and sisters. Number three, in a strong Christian community, our freedom and rights in Christ yield to one another's good. In a strong Christian community, our freedom and rights in Christ yield to one another's good. When our attitude is, I shouldn't have to, there's a good chance that we're sacrificing love for others at the altar of self. Think about this comment. It usually stems from a selfish reason. Maybe I'm always the, always the one having to do something. Well, I shouldn't have to do this again. Maybe we really just don't want to do it, and there's other people that are more capable, they enjoy it more, or I don't want to have to give something up, I really enjoy something, I don't want to have to give, I shouldn't have to be the one to give something up, I care more about it. There's a decent chance that you're actually correct in these statements. There's a decent chance, you're, you're right, you shouldn't have to be the one always doing this. You shouldn't have to be the one to take up the slack here. You shouldn't have to be the one to give something up to someone else. But the attitude reveals the condition of the heart in that moment. It has nothing to do with whether or not that statement is right. That may be proper knowledge. But the attitude reveals the puffed up nature of it instead of the building up loving nature of it. To use Paul's example of food, you can just imagine, well, why should I have to give up bacon? It's just food, <laughs> right? They should know it doesn't mean anything. It's not sinful. It's delicious. If they're convicted about eating bacon, they can get over it. Now, I don't think, 
to clarify that the scriptures are teaching that we live our lives at the sole direction of others' feelings or according to others' consciences. I don't see that in this passage. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. There's obviously some kind of line that we have to draw somewhere. It's going to be hard to know exactly where the line goes, and I'm not attempting to place it at a particular point. What's more important here is simply that we recognize there is a line. We, we should not live as though there is no line. And, and how it affects other people has no bearing on what I ought to do as a Christian. Even if we can't figure out exactly where that line goes, we know that it's somewhere. And that other attitude says there is no line and I don't care. We ought not to think that way. There is a line that separates my selfish desires, even if there's nothing wrong with them, from the good of others. And if you want an example of this, just look back to Jesus. He sacrificed his selfish desires. He prayed, God, if there is any way, please remove this cup from me. But then, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus laid down his life. He could have snapped his fingers, called down a legion of angels. They would have taken him back up into glory. He doesn't actually even need the angels, if we're being honest. But he stayed there. He doesn't deserve to be punished for my sin, but he did. We ought to be willing to lay down our lives for others. The Pharisees are a perfect example of a group that failed at all three. And we are like that all the time. But Jesus is a good example of what it looks like to follow all three. Church, tying our passage back into 1 Corinthians 10.31. Do not let your rights or freedoms as a Christian keep you from doing all things to the glory of God. Sometimes that might mean laying your rights or freedoms to the side. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good and holy and righteous. Your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so your thoughts and ways are higher than ours. Lord, we are tempted to cling to the freedoms and the rights that we have as Christians because they are truly good things. They are not bad things. They are gifts that you've given us that we might be set free from a strict adherence to the law and a works-based righteousness. We thank you that we are not bound by those things. Lord, but in a moment of confession, we often treat our rights and our freedoms as God. We treat our desires as God and show that we really aren't as knowledgeable as we think we are. Would you teach us as we acquire knowledge of what is right and wrong in the Christian life, what we ought to do and what we ought not to do? Would you teach us to be willing to sacrifice our desires, our rights and our freedoms, if the exercise of those things might hinder or slow down the growth of our brothers and sisters? 
Teach us, Lord, how to be mindful of our Christian community, our church, as we seek to live live out our identity in Christ. Thank you for sending us the supreme example, Jesus Christ, not just to be our example, but to redeem us from a life of sin that we might live in righteousness both here on earth and for all eternity with you in heaven. Thank you for saving us. Now continue to sanctify us in Jesus' name. Amen.